Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your neighborhood friendly pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. And boy, oh boy, am I super excited about what we have today, Santos. <laughs> yeah, you're so excited. You're actually keeping your your enthusiasm contained. I know, which is a shame, <laughs> but... But here's the deal. You know how I constantly just think with and live by my stomach? Uh, yeah, to the point where it gets distracting. Right, because we're always taught, follow your gut. Uh. <laughs> I cut out the middleman, and I just allow my gut to do all my thinking for me. And finally, yeah. finally, okay. I get justification that I've been right all along. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and put words in our wonderful, prestigious guest's mouth and say that he's not going to 100% agree with you here. Completely 100% validated. <laughs> so, uh, topic... 50%. 50% validated, maybe? 50% validated. All right. <laughs> well, today's topic is actually going to be neurogastronomy. And I know all our home listeners are asking themselves, what in the heck is that? So I could give you the easy answer, but you know I never do that. So Santosh, do you know what neurogastronomy is? Uh, you've got uh, gastro, you've got the word stomach in there, and you've got neuro, which is for nerves. So I'm guessing a marriage of nerves and the enteric tract. That sounds like as good a place as any to start. Okay. And So the, the study of the nervous system as re- as it relates to the gastrointestinal tract. How about that? Yes. Yes. And then the, right. the working definition I found while uh, researching, but I'm going to bury the lead. So without further ado, yeah. to learn about neurogastronomy, we're bringing on Professor Charles Spence, who's an experimental psychologist at the University of Oxford, as well as head of the Crossmodal Research Group. He specializes in integration of info across different sensory modalities, taste, smell, sight, sound, all those extra ones. 
he's worked on a whole bunch of stuff human computer interactions in the european space shuttle he is the one of the directors at kitchen theory which works on design of foods to maximally stimulate the senses he's published more articles oh food science yeah he's published more articles in scientific journals than i can possibly count including the ig nobel prize winning the role of auditory <laughs> cues in modulating perceived crispness and staleness of potato chips. And he's the author of multiple books, including one I'm currently listening to on Audible and how I first found out about this called Gastrophysics, the Science of Eating. So welcome, Professor Spence. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> I know it was a real big build. Thanks. <laughs> It was, well, there's there's quite a bit to cover, Dr. Spence. You've been working on this subject for quite a long time. That's right. I've been a busy boy, and there's um, probably nothing more interesting than flavor than food. We've all got an opinion, and from where I'm coming from, kind of as a psychologist interested in the senses, how we hear, see, smell, taste, and feel the world around us, probably there's little that's more multisensory uh, than food and drink. A man after my own heart. So <laughs> tell us, neurogastronomy is a relatively new field. It's only been around since about 2004 or so. How did you first get involved in it? So I've always been interested in the senses um, and trying to apply the latest insights from brain science and, and psychological science to the real world. And that has taken me from the, the crew workstation, the European Space Agency, through warning signals for car drivers that stimulate parts of your brain you didn't realize you had, um, through, in more recent years, to the world of food and drink, uh, to the world of gastronomy uh, and neurogastronomy, um, which is kind of a natural place to end up in one sense because it's, I think, it's the most multisensory of our experiences. We use all our senses when we eat, when we evaluate the flavor of things we like or, or don't. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not something that my scientific colleagues in psychology, at least, have really spent much time thinking about. Uh, food and drink, that's kind of not a serious scientific topic. Uh, so I think that the idea that um, we have the new names of, of neurogastronomy and gastrophysics are both kind of out there now to kind of put a marker and say, you know, there's something changed and happened um, around the world of food and drink. And, and all the things we are learning about how we perceive the world around us from the from the neuro from the brain side well we can apply them not just to the way we hear and see but also to the way in which we experience uh flavors and, and then this, these new terms the neurogastronomy and the gastrophysics really capture this kind of um, combination of lots of different sciences i think smell and taste through disorders through cognitive neuroscience through psychology through sensory science through gastronomy and beyond who are all coming together to try and figure out ways to better stimulate the senses while we eat and drink in order to create more memorable or stimulating taste sensations. Or on the other hand, to try and figure out other ways we can nudge people who towards better food behaviors. Oh, so you can, you can actually span the study all the way from how food and drink kind of gives us pleasure and you know why why shouldn't this be a more broad field i mean this is one of our most fundamental needs as organisms is taking in nourishment but then spanning all the way to see how our food habits can affect other disease processes um, specifically other neurological and psychological diseases perhaps 
Uh, that is right. Um, sort of favourite quotes. I, I go around the world um, uh, visiting psychology departments and trying to convince my colleagues who are interested in the senses that they should really get into the world of food and drink. Sort of by bringing out this quote from J. Z. Young, who, who, who um, you know, sort of say, you know, our, our brains have sort of evolved to uh, find those energy dense food sources in the environment, and sort of food is what our brains one of the, its primary roles. And hence, even if you're not interested in food per se. But who can't be still mm-hmm. in the brain and how we perceive you really ought to consider how we've kind of evolved to uh, process those food related cues i think we're getting somewhere i'm starting to see more of my colleagues uh, uh, get into this space a lot of exciting things to do but also challenges as well as you kind of working between disciplines between you know gastronomy trying to work with chefs but also food companies and and, and neuroscientists um all coming together to answer some Pretty tricky questions, um, but are ones that I think are tractable and that we are start starting to see some real progress uh, on. I mean, on the one hand, we kind of work a lot with with the chefs trying to make you know these most gorgeous, memorable, multi sensory dining experiences. So we've done things like work with um, uh, Heston Blumenthal, former world's top chef, on a dish called the Sound of the Sea, where, where oh. this beautiful, beautiful plate of seafood. Uh, sashimi uh, and seaweed and what looks like sand and, and foam as if you're on the beach and at the same time the waiter brings a, a conch shell out of which dribble some earbuds and, and when you put those earbuds in at the table at this three michelin star restaurant you will hear the sounds of the waves crashing gently on the beach you'll hear the seagulls swirling overhead um, and this is a, a total multi-sensory experience bringing together the best of food from a three michelin star chef together with an understanding of how our other senses off the plate, uh, what we're hearing, what we're feeling, what we're smelling, the lighting, the chair we're sitting on, all of these factors actually can influence now, our experience you, of food. Especially since you bring up this amazing like multi-sensory plate, what are your thoughts then on another popular, I guess, restaurant trend earlier in the year, which were the blind restaurants where you're eating in total darkness, you can't see uh, you only hear sort of other people. How does that change the taste mm-hmm. of what's going on? So, um, uh, sort of blind, dark dining experiences. I've been around now probably for a couple of decades since they first appeared somewhere in, uh, in Middle Europe. Um, I think it's an interesting concept. Uh, it certainly fits into the idea that experience of food and drink, our experience of dining, are so much more than just what you find on the plate. So it is experiential. It is sort of multisensory in a way. I think the logic is rely more on the other senses. And by turning the lights off, by bringing sighted diners into that dark dining experience, then maybe you can get to experience the world a bit like how a blind person might. And perhaps by turning off your vision, in a way your dominant sense, maybe the other ones will come to the fore and sort of speak more loudly. It's a sort of nice idea. And yet, uh, I've sort of reviewed the, the, the uh, dark dining notion uh, in a few book chapters. Um, and what you find is it's an interesting experience to go, to go once. Um, but you cannot find anybody in print who says the food tastes better as a result of turning the lights away. It's so simple. I guess we'd all be doing it at home. We wouldn't have to go to the restaurant for it. Oh, sure. <laughs> so it's kind of- we just kill the lights at home at our dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's kind of an interesting experience once. Why? Because... I, I realize with the lights off that I don't know if you're listening to me, I, you've got to grunt or, or do something to say you're still in this conversation, not another one going on at another table. It's sort of interesting. You figure out, oh, well, white wine and red wine 
I always used to differentiate them by what they looked like, but in the dark, well, it's what they feel like, the different temperature of the glasses. Beyond that, I think eye appeal is such a key part of the meal and that our brains have evolved to make predictions about the flavour and the energy density, the fat content of, uh, of foods, uh, sources, that when you switch that off, uh, and especially when in those dine-in-the-dark restaurants, you very often give a misleading or, or an ambiguous t- – you don't really describe what you're about to eat very clearly. It's a, a dark horseman galloping into the night might be your main course. So you've got oh, oh, wow. what you're going to taste. And then without vision, without the expectations that our eyes set, it's kind of a, a weakened experience, really. Uh, so I see it as an experiential. I see it growing a lot in, in the Far East. It's not because it's a, a great dining experience as such, but it seems to be particularly popular amongst those going on a first date. Ted, so much of this is tied up in, in both olfaction yep. and taste. And kind of as I was going over over a number of your studies, I've learned we have two different kinds of, this is going to sound terrible, we have two different kinds of smells or ways to smell. And that is orthonasal, <laughs> which is scent molecules outside the body. And then retronasal, which is scent molecules we generate when we're chewing and sort of masticating our food. And that retronasal is really the one that's that's more important. And we've even evolved to have improved taste over our evolutionary lifetimes. So what can you kind of tell me about how how important sense versus, you know, tongue is in, in tasting? So oh, what I start off by saying is it's all very complicated, uh, <laughs> uh, in part because we use sort of words differently and ambiguously when we're talking to scientists versus just an everyday language. And when I say I love the taste of that dish, mm-hmm. the taste of that cheese, in everyday language, we're sort of describing the total experience of the food, the thing that we experience as if it's coming from our mouth, uh, the flavour of the liquid or the cheese or whatever it might be that's that's moving around in the oral cavity. And yet, I think our brains are playing tricks on us very often. And in fact, most of what we think we are tasting, as in experiencing in the mouth, is really coming from the sense of smell. And as you say, it, there are kind of two senses of smell. There's the, the, the sort of sniffing as we uh, uh, figure out what's in the world around us. And then as we are eating and drinking, when we when we swallow, we'll sort of pulse these volatile, rich um, pulses of air out from the back of the mouth into the nose. And that is kind of the retronasal smell as opposed to the orthonasal sniff. So it's kind of the same smell molecules by and large, but kind of depending on which way they go up or down the nose, uh, we give a different uh, uh, description to them. And when we look at the science, I guess, I mean, we've all probably had that experience that when we've had a head cold, or if we're very unfortunate, maybe we've been in a car accident and banged the front of our head, uh, sort of say, well, food doesn't taste of anything anymore. I've got this cold and, and, and food is like really boring. There's no taste. And very often people come to my lab in Oxford. I'm not a medical doctor, a psychological PhD. Uh, they'll come and say, you know, I've lost my sense of, of taste. Uh, and when you probe a little bit more deeply, it turns out in 99% of those cases, what people have really lost is their sense of smell. But our brain plays this trick that what we smell in the nose, we actually ventriloquize. It's like in the cinema when you when you hear the voices as if coming from the lips on the screen, uh, when they're really coming from a loudspeaker somewhere else. Our brain does mm. all the time is take those smells and ventriloquize them into the mouth to convince us we can really taste with our tongue uh, 
uh, when we fact we can't. And to put that into numbers, when people say how much of what you think you're tasting is actually smelling, coming from that retronasal root, then people would say something like 75 to 95%. So the way we do it in the, um, it's probably a fun one to try at home, is um, in demonstrations and dinners, is to get people sort of hold their nose closed as if they're sort of deep sea diving. And then to right. something like a jelly bean. That's what you taste with your nose closed. And, and people will taste sweetness, maybe sourness. That's about it. And then you say, okay, as you're still chewing that jelly bean, let go of your nose. And suddenly you get ah, the, the flavor emerges. The fruity, the floral, the meaty, the herbal, the creamy, the burnt. Um, all of the interesting things about taste are really coming from the nose. And all our tongue actually gives us is sweet. Salty, sour, bitter, umami, whatever that is. Maybe <laughs> acid, metallic. But but that it's a really it's a really sort of thin experience with your nose closed that we have when we have a head cold and our nose is blocked. That you have in our demonstrations with your nose closed eating a jelly bean. And yet this is this is this wonderful example of sort of multisensory perception that we're all fooled all of the time by by by, by the way our brain puts all the information from what we see and from what we smell retronasally and glues it back into that thing you have in your mouth and convinces you that's where the taste is from. That's amazing. So this is neurological crosstalk. It's akin to a bit of like normal synesthesia, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> oh, where, <yes. laughs> you know, so, you know, you're, you're tasting a scent, <laughs> so to speak, um, where, you know, and it, do we have, neurological pathways that you've been able to uh, map or describe or some of your colleagues have been yeah. able to show yeah. where uh, you see the physical structures? I might say that's a contradiction in terms to say it's like a normal kind of synesthesia. And then people think that way. And in my uh, looser moments, I may say that it is sort of right, but wrong. Um, but gotcha. in a way that's sort of interesting. When you ask people about the smell of strawberry or caramel or vanilla and say what does vanilla you know if i if you smell vanilla what's it what what taste do you associate and they'll say well vanilla smells sweet caramel when i smell it it smells sweet and that is a kind of synesthesia because right. smelling something and yet i'm describing it i'm smelling vanilla but i'm describing it in terms of a taste a different sense what's going on on my tongue uh, so that's kind of like synesthesia. And yet the synesthetes, these are the people who see coloured numbers and days of the week when, when reading black and white text. Every sort of, by definition, synesthesia is idiosyncratic. It's different between each and every synesthete. Each person. Whereas yeah. we all think that vanilla, at least within a certain cultural context, we all think vanilla smells sweet. And it's kind of normal, means it can't be quite synesthesia. And then maybe, you know, the synesthete, when they read that black and white text, then they hear sounds, then they think of days of the week and they see colours. They can both see the text and also the concurrent colour experience. Whereas for you or I, when when we smell something that tastes of vanilla, it's all kind of one experience. It's all glued together. Oh, I instead. see. It's, uh, it's not as separate as a synesthete would, yeah, would not say. Quite, uh, I'm experiencing uh, I'm more consistent. And yet, and yet there is sort of similarity because it is a crosstalk between the senses and one that probably comes based on, on our experience. We weren't born thinking that vanilla smelt sweet, we sort of learn. When we're in the womb, from what our mother eats, we'll learn these kind of connections between the senses and that they're really important. In fact, now adults, if we're thinking about, well, how can we... Because people were sort of, you know, hardwired to like sweetness and that seems to have sort of bad consequences for our health and for our well-being. Uh, and yet when, say, companies try and reduce the sugar content 
in our favorite brands and foods, then, then we consumers complain, say, what are you doing? Put back brand the way it was. That's why we like it. So sort of companies, I think, food companies are in a sort of a bind that they know what they should do, what they want to do, what they're being told to do. And yet when they do it, they kind of lose market share because consumers don't like it. And hence there's the real sort of push towards can we use these surprising, almost synesthetic connections in order to deliver sweetness without the calories? So can we, in fact, if we gave you uh, your favorite drink, but gave it a note of vanilla, and maybe give it a note of caramel, and maybe give it a note of strawberry. If we could layer up these sweet smells, smells that have no calories at all, maybe we could deliver a kind of a, an experienced sweetness now, you that talked about, uh, would like allow us to reduce the actual sugar almost uh, content. Almost sensory illusions that we're treating ourselves with. And I know in your, in your books and your studies, you've covered a number of these different ones. Like, I think some of the ones you came up with is strawberry mousse is perceived as 10% sweeter when eaten from a white container over a black one, uh, whereas coffee drunk from white mugs tastes two times more intense compared to black, or yogurt is more filling when the container is heavier. Why? I guess just why. Why? <laughs> So, 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 so over the last uh, what was it now, 15, 20 years since we got our ignoble, which is probably one of my first food experts on, on, on the crunch of the of the potato chip, um, mm-hmm. we've sort of started by thinking about not just physical taste, what's going on on the tongue in terms of sweet, sour, bitter, and salty, uh, nor just the smell, the retronasal smell of a creamy, meaty herbal, but how the other senses play into the experience. And that initially was with things like the sound of food and the color of food. What happens if you... Uh, you know, you take a, a white yogurt and you make it look pink, odorless, tasteless food dye. And it's remarkable. People, it just tastes sweeter. And, and you have people coming back. And, and when we do it in experiments and for TV shows, they're kind of coming back and say, hold on a minute, let me taste that one again. And they can't really can't believe it. So it's sort of perceptually real simply by adding that sort of pinkish color to the food itself. It becomes uh, sweeter. And we've done lots of studies in that space. Why is this and which colors work to bring out sweetness or sour, salty or bitter? Um, and then we've sort of slowly gone beyond the food because you never just ha- taste the drink or the food. There's always that food is always served on a plate. The drink always comes in a glass or a can or a bottle or a container or, or you know, a pint pot or whatever it is these days. And for, for me, I'm not a flavor scientist or a kind of a, a, a neuroscientist as such. I'm sort of more from the psychological background. I'm really interested in, in the things that, that haven't been studied. So impact of the glass, the impact of the plate on food. And that was why in, in, in 2012, together with Fran Adria and other of the world's top chefs from, from uh, in, in, in Spain, uh, we did a study in his research labs serving that strawberry mousse off uh, and didn't change the color of the food itself. This time just changed the color of the plate on which it was served. And you're right. Bizarre that it seems those sort of 67 people who we tested uh, in those days, seven years ago, they all tasted the same strawberry mousse, all from the same batch, all from the same day, in the same place. Uh, half of them started with a black plate. The other half started with eating the mousse off the white plate. Uh, and yet, when they tasted it from the white plate, it really did taste sweeter, more flavorful, and, and, and more liked than from the black plate. And this was 2012, and it was sort of bizarre. And he sort of published it, put it out there. But sort of, you know, somewhere you couldn't quite believe it's true, because we can't literally taste the plate. And yet our results were saying that, you know, that white plates made things taste sweeter. That was 2012 when we published it. And now <laughs> seven years later in 2019, uh, it turns out this is a thriving research area. And there are <laughs> tens of studies from around the world, from Taiwan. If you want to make your spicy tofu 
taste spicier. Then put it on a red plate. There's studies from oh, wow. with cheesecake. Again, round and white plates make things, the cheesecake taste sweeter. And recently, we've been doing some really exciting stuff with a, um, a colleague, Faviana Cavallo, who's in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And we've been working with coffee roasters, baristas, um, and so on, and serving coffee from these different colored cups. And again, you know, you have these sort of several hundred of these coffee experts, the Q graders, the people who are really passionate and knowledgeable about their coffee. And in these coffee shows, we, we serve the same range of coffees from a pink cup, from a yellow cup, from a green cup, uh, or, or just from a straight white one. And as soon as you see the pink cup, suddenly your mind's thinking sweet. So it's almost as if, and then when you actually taste coffee, if your mind is thinking sweet because of the color of the cup or the can, then when you taste it, you're more likely to find that in the taste experience. It sort of has to be there to begin with. I can't give you a glass of water in a pink glass and suddenly it will taste sweet. But if there's a bit of sweetness there to begin with, I can use the colour of the plate or the cup or the glass to kind of draw your attention to that in much the same way that, you know, the wine expert into one of the wine tastings will say, oh, can't you get the asparagus on the nose? Uh, And suddenly it's there. A moment before when you were tasting the wine, you couldn't quite figure out what it was you got. It was complex. It was interesting. You liked it. But what were the, what were the, what were the notes? And suddenly when, when, when he or she tells you it's asparagus or, or cat's piss or whatever it might be, <laughs> there, uh, uh, and it becomes more salient. And it's this kind of attention that we have. Do these, do these colors cross cultural bounds? Like um, certainly purple, purple is associated with royalty in some countries and just has no association in others. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, and, and yet, so I think there are cultural differences, but also uh, universals. Um, so I think no matter where on the earth uh, you were born or, or grew up, blue of dawn looks a certain way. Uh, the fruits will generally go from green and unripe to redder and riper and sweeter. Uh, so these sort of things are, are there the world over, and we sort of pick them up, internalize those kind of statistics of the environment. And a lot of our, our experiments are sort of picking up on that and then playing them back. Uh, 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 in experiences in restaurants and and so probably for, from the case of the the pink the pink yogurt case then why is pink the sweet thing well i think if you go to the supermarket if you go down the kids kind of candy aisle and that pink is very often associated with sweet my brains of you know in the past we would have picked up the statistics of, 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 of the jungle canopy i suppose um figuring out which colors were associated with sweetness and with energy um and nowadays we spend more of our time in the supermarkets, really, or, or just sort of shopping online. And then we pick up these associations uh, that are there in the marketplace, internalize them. But then you can use them in order to set expectations. And by so doing, kind of chasing the taste experience. And be that through through color, uh, as we mentioned. But also the one that, that, that really sort of bizarre, I suppose, is, is the weight thing. That you know, eating from a heavy bowl uh, seems to make things more satiating uh, to us. Or eating uh, eating um, uh, from a textured bowl. If you're actually sort of holding a bowl, uh, I mean, there's been a whole bowl food kind of revolution in recent years. I think that sort of makes a lot of sense from the astrophysics perspective in that food is not just food. It's always eaten from something. And that a bowl, say a bowl without a rim, will look like there's more food there. A bowl that we hold in our hands will probably bring closer to our nose and hence get more of the sensation of the olfaction of the food um, and a bowl that we hold in our hands, say, I think our, we're, we're really bad, it seems, at separating out the food from the bowl, the, the drink from the glass, the, 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 uh, the soda from the canning which it comes. Uh, and it's almost as if our brains, whatever we think about the receptacle, the plate, 
the bowl, the can, or the cutlery we use to eat, that seems to carry over to how we evaluate the thing that we are eating or drinking or, or, or tasting. And hence, by we did a really fun study in um, a Scottish restaurant where everyone got the same uh, salmon dish for the main course, but at half the tables we had very heavy restaurant, fine dining restaurant cutlery. At the other tables, the same people were eating the same food, um, but it was actually very light canteen, kind of cheap-feeling cutlery. And we asked people about how much they'd be willing to pay for the food, how much they liked the food, and those who held something heavier in their hands rated the food as better and were willing to pay more. It's kind of bizarre. It makes no sense. And yet we find it again and again that these kind of extrinsic factors uh, are more important than we ever realised. And these extrinsic factors are precisely the ones that no one's really thought about studying. That, you know, if you think about it, everything that we eat gets to our mouths, to our taste buds, uh, by means probably of cutlery, really, knives, forks, spoons. And yet until 2011, there had never been a scientific well, study it has to be four, of cutlery. How many times should there be on the fork? Well, it has to be four, otherwise you'd call it a threek or a fivek. It's, I mean, that just that's common sense, but... Oh, stop it. <laughs> no, but this sounds like something that either consciously or unconsciously friends or enemies or colleagues mm-hmm. in something like advertising have been doing for decades, right? So the way that they present food on the television screen or on a billboard or something is extremely carefully crafted. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a McDonald's commercial over here, or if it's, uh, you know, Burger King or whatever it is, um, this has been like a, a very hot topic that, you know, the, the advertiser goes in and say, oh, we want to zoom in on the food or the, we want the drink, the Coca-Cola to kind of sizzle like that. And it has to be presented in just this kind of a way. And I, I know psychologists have been studying that aspect that like how advertisers get to us for a long time this seems like a very natural extension of that same investigation uh, that, that, that's right i think um as the marketers intuitively um more than by any other means have sort of honed in on those ways of presenting describing packaging food and drinks that seem to appeal to a, as broad an audience as possible. They, they haven't done it by and large by understanding the brain of the person tasting. They can just... Oh, sure. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, they, sure. Focus groups. Um, uh, I, I think it's right. And, and very often we're sort of looking back at what the, the, the marketers have sort of intuitively stumbled upon and then sort of um, post-rationalizing or figuring out why that was so effective as a uh, cue. Um and I think but one of the things that sort of marketeers don't get, they can maybe understand a particular category, but if they don't understand the mechanism neurally about why these sorts of ways of presenting food and adverts appeal to us, they're never really sure about kind of generalizing it to another ca- category. And that's where they kind of, they think the, the neurogastronomy and the gastrophysics really comes into its own saying, okay, if this is the mechanism behind why uh, showing food in motion, say, attracts us if this is why well my favorite term is kind of you know yoke porn which is this kind of oh that, sure. uh, it's, again it's something that i think the advertisers have sort of stumbled on that you have the right. you have the yoke kind of dripping out either actually or just appearing as if it in, you've got the mid shot of this sort of food in motion you know sort of energy dense food in motion hence the kind of the yoke porn that is so attractive to our brains that you know we really can't resist paying attention to it. If if, if that image 
one of the other examples I bring up in the book is, is you know, if you see the food from a first person perspective, it's much easier. And yeah. some of those those burger chains are, are using this. If, if I show somebody else eating a burger, well, it's their burger, not my burger. Get also, the, the Hardee's commercials with the supermodels, <laughs> that's why it didn't work as well. Because then that was, it was a, it was a sexy supermodel. Yeah, and he spent all the time looking burger. at her and not at the burger. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know, they imagine the camera inside uh, somebody's mouth and then you see the burger coming to the mouth. Suddenly, <laughs> that could be mine. And all the time, I think our brains are sort of simulating the act of eating. So even when I'm on the underground in London and I see that sort of dynamic advert with the slice of lasagna coming, being cut from the, from the tray and it's sort of oozing the cheese and steaming, that is food in motion, it's high energy, food in motion, my brain can't resist it. Um, it's been discovered intuitively, but now with the science behind it, we're seeing what I think should be sort of scary in a way, um, that marketeers will be more sure. a better able to target, make the irresistible adverts, have it in motion, have it high energy dense, have it first person perspective, have a note of freshness, um, and all these kind of tricks and triggers that I think we will find it very hard to resist. And even though we're just watching a picture uh, on a screen or a billboard, our brains don't seem so good at separating an image of food from the real thing. Then we kind of simulate the act of eating and anything you can do as a, a marketeer or as a chef or as a restaurateur to make it easier for your guests or consumers to simulate the act of eating that translates into a little bit higher liking. So in sort of the high end of dining context with, with chefs like um, Heston Blumenthal at the Fat Duck and, and Joseph Yusuf, who I work with in, in Kitchen Theory, they'll be very careful at the start of the meal in their restaurants um, to give you some amuse-bouche, and they'll notice which hand you use to pick the food up with. And it's not really about the food. Oh. It's about figuring out your handedness. And oh my goodness! At the rest of the meal, they can meal. kind of personalize the service to whether you're a lefty or, or a righty. <laughs> so, um, uh, if I'm I've got a, a bowl of soup or something, or an ice cream with a spoon, then if I'm a right-hander, I may prefer to have that spoon on the right-hand side of the bowl. If I'm serving I you a cup of coffee see. or a cup of tea, okay. where should the handle be? Fitting your dominant uh, hand, it won't change the taste of the drink, it, but it will change the fluency with which your brain can simulate drinking, eating, and that sort of enhanced fluency of processing, of imagining myself eating that thing or drinking that thing. So there, there's one side here which is wonderful, which is to take, um, you know, introducing these concepts in the very real world to chefs and and even maybe those of us who are at home, moms and dads trying to feed our kids. Trying to get them, would you please yeah. eat your broccoli? <laughs> and, um, you know, trying to find a way aside from just uh, taste to, to get it to appeal and these kind of things. But it, it also brings to mind that we have to be more aware as consumers that there are, you know, people trying to sell food to us that may not be very good for us, but they have armies of, you know, advertisers and they're going to start delving into the science to hack it in a way so that, you know, I, I go off to my local fast food eatery because I'm attracted that way by the sight sensations and the smells, even before I have a chance to tell myself, oh, no, I shouldn't be eating that stuff. Well, Santosh, let's 
let's fast forward this a little from from the advertising side and circle around to medical. One of the biggest issues we deal with is nutrition education of our patients. We have people who are diabetic and need to better control their blood sugar. We have so many people who have high blood pressure or heart failure and are told to avoid salt. But, you know, these are the foods that taste the best. So what are some ways, techniques we can use to trick ourselves? Because I'm listening to you and I'm getting angry at my own brain being, oh, my God, I'm hearing this. And I fall and smell the best and all these others. Just super gullible. So what are ways that we can trick ourselves into improving how we eat, either through color or sound or whatever? And even how to (laughs) briefly to advertising? Now we're seeing a big rise of meat or plant, uh, plant-based meat substitutes like the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers, where even people who are not vegetarian are starting to enjoy, you know, these kinds of foods. So how can we improve our health by tricking our own <laughs> stupid brains? You're right. Once we sort of acknowledge there is a dark, potentially a dark side out there of of those companies sort of um, almost appealing to our weaker side or to the way we've evolved and the way we think about and, and process foods. How can we flip it for good? And I think there are lots of possibilities and opportunities here. For example, uh, the sort of interesting work around salt reduction. And again, if if you're a food company and you reduce the salt in food, then your consumers will complain it just doesn't taste good anymore. What can you do? Well, you can again sort of trick the brain in a good way in this case by building on some of those psychological foibles, if you will, of, of memory and perception that when we taste something, uh, we probably remember sort of the first bite and maybe the last bite, but the stuff in the middle, that's kind of, you know, we're sort of switched off by that point. So I think whenever we see a dish placed down before us or we make something, then we sort of predict what's it gonna, what it's going to taste like, how good, how, 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 how flavorful, how much will I enjoy it. And that prediction, based on the, what we see, maybe what we smell or hear, then when we actually taste the food, we take one bite and say, our brain says, you know, is that what I was expecting? And if it more or less was, then you kind of switch off and you, you concentrate on your on your Twitter feed or your you know, what's on the TV or whatever it might be. But food kind of falls into the background. Uh, and, and as such, that offers an opportunity that if you uh, deliver a dish and you can make sure that the first mouthful or the first taste is, you know, has lots of salt in it. Wow, what a great taste. It switches off. And for the rest of the dish, the drink or the snack, uh, you actually reduce the salt content in the middle of the experience or the bar, and hence you'd end up delivering a great tasting experience by sort of hacking the brain because of the way it sort of perceives. Because we always imagine that you know a drink will taste the same the first mouthful to the last. It doesn't sort of change on us in the way of our... Um, and so that can be used. Or others are using things like... Um, I, I sort of like this idea of... Um, imagine we're going to add a certain amount of salt to a lasagna, say... Well, you can just evenly distribute it throughout the whole um, lasagna. Or oh, you can create some I sort of like peak that. salty moments by only adding the salt to the alternate layers uh, of the meat and sauce. It's genius. It's that sort of contrast. That works. Uh, yeah, maybe that's, like, that's, that's so kind of this sort of salted caramel and the salted chocolate thing going on right there that, you know, by intensifying and sort of concentrating it, you can, again, trick the brain to having a coming away thinking, wow, that was a great tasting thing. Uh, because of uh, these sort of things. Uh, another example we're working on very closely. My, uh, my own mother died of, from, from from dementia um, uh, at Christmas. Um, for the last two years, she was in a home uh, here in Oxford, uh, and I sort of could see the decline. And I, I, I get really sort of upset with the, with the sort of food that she was given, and that most hospital yes. patients here in the UK are given. 
that, you know, the, the hospitals, that care should be about healing people. And yet there's a real neglect of the food. It's like not important. Let's get the surgery, let's get the intervention done. And food is like a, a luxury that we don't need to care about. And yet uh, there is that evidence to say, you know, many patients, especially elderly Fair. patients, when they go Fair into point. care for a hospital, if they're not clinically you know, underfed when they go in, they most likely are when they come out, uh, assuming they do <laughs> get to come out. Um, uh, and that undernutrition then leads to lower, slower recovery from whatever uh, condition they were facing and the treatment they've had, and hence can add an extra burden in terms of cost uh, and duration of recovery. So I think you know, nutrition is crucially important in, in the healthcare scenario. In my mother's case, you know, for the last two years, she never liked ice cream during her lifetime. Uh, but in the last year or so, that was about the only thing we could feed her. That uh, oh, yeah. Somebody who'd never liked yeah. ice cream in the last year or so, that was about the only thing she would eat. Um, so why? What's, what's changed? Is it that it was a, like a nostalgic food she'd sort of forgotten most of her life, but maybe ice cream triggered your childhood memories and happiness? Or was it that as a 81-year-old, um, she's probably uh, lost most of her sense of smell and taste because all our senses decline as, as they age. And hence, if you lost smell and taste, then maybe you have to work with the residual senses and maybe temperature is still there. And so what's so nice about ice cream may have been just the, the, you know, the temperature st stimulation. And if that's so, then again, um, how can we modify the presentation of meals in hospital for various groups in order to improve nutrition, reduce undernutrition, and hopefully reduce bed stays and, and, and that sort of prognosis? I think it's a really exciting area, but one that that um, does sort of go against this sort of notion that you know hospitals don't serve great food. <laughs> but it, it's coming, I think, and we've been working with chefs, and we had a really nice dinner with a um, like an, uh, a home for aged actors, and that's sort of innovative sure. um, in their approach. Um, and so for them, we were able to host together with Chef Joseph uh, this kind of you know gastrophysics neurogastronomy chef's table dinner for some of the residents just to trial out a transformation of ice cream. Because I could see in, in my mother's case in the care home where she was, that ice cream is treated as like a childish food. Yeah, yeah, right. Like well, it's a treat, and we'll, we'll give it to you, like but this. you shouldn't really be yeah. having it. Was kind of the the, the feeling I got. And yet you can, through um, modernist cooking techniques, um, from the Paco Jets and from, 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 from um, other, other means, you can actually, ice cream can be a great vehicle for the delivery of nutrients. And so with the chef, we, we served this meal with all of these sort of nostalgic but nutritious uh, vegetable uh, ice cream. We had, we had like um, a tomato soup, Heinz tomato soup, ice cream, prawn marie cocktail, a real dish of the 70s. Uh, we were projecting the, the sight of kind of flock wallpaper on the table. We were playing Vera Lynn, kind of musician from the Second World War here in the UK, and using all the senses to try and trigger nostalgia and use this thing, uh, that cold, desirable sort of texture of ice cream, in order to deliver uh, what was, in fact, a nutritious uh, meal uh, uh, to the individual. So it's a real good taste case, um, but one that's always going to be kind of really hard as a scientist and psychologist and a gastrophysicist trying to do the experiments, that's one that's really hard to actually get done because in, in the lab or in the restaurant, you don't have to fill out ethics forms. You just give your diners some food and see what they think. But in a hospital, and we've been working, you know, in a, an anti-cancer children's hospital in, in on the outskirts of Barcelona with a lot of these patients, uh, young kids, who, who who think everything tastes metallic because of their anti-cancer uh, care. And hence, if they think everything tastes metallic, they don't eat. Oh, nice. And hence, their recovery is delayed. Uh 
and I think you know we're, we're currently working with them to try and figure out are there these sort of psychological techniques in order to help enhance the experience of food and one what is it really about metallic that's so un- unappealing you know if you think about uh, ripe French cheese and epoisse it smells terrible so if something as <laughs> horrible as that can be made delicious why shouldn't metallic actually be a desirable taste or flavor sensation is it just because if we only really experience it in the context of hospitals and healthcare, it's kind of negatively valenced. Oh. But maybe this is a challenge to my chef, friend Joseph. Why don't you come up with a, a chef's table, a, you know, a real delicious meal uh, in the restaurant that's based around metallic notes? And if your first ex- metallic taste was in that high dining, high dining, expensive kind of food environment, maybe then when you experience that taste in healthcare, you might view it uh, uh, differently. It might not work. And you might tell us that there's you know, something fundamentally different here, but I think it's an interesting challenge and test case to see what we can do and take from the dark side of the, of, of the, of the sensory approach to food through advertising and marketing and sort of flip it and say, okay, we can use exactly the same principles. It's just scientific insights at the end of the day and use them in order to help people in hospital, in care, or even to, you know the parents who the, the most common question I ever get is always, I've got my kids, they won't eat their vegetables. What, do you, what can we do? Can we use gastrophysics in order to help? And this is why I think you know the, the, the kind of the neurogastronomy uh, symposium coming up again uh, this year uh, over there in North America is so important because a key feature uh, since the beginning, since I was there at the first meeting uh, in, in Kentucky, uh, whenever it was five years, four or five years ago, uh, was the kind of focus on we need to take the science, we need to take the understanding, and integrate it into better taste experiences, better food experiences for those who really need it. And in our first meeting, they had a couple of, of patients who were recovering from cancer um, and had a chef there who was trying to cook foods I, based I'm on all so his knowledge about the senses and about taste. Some chemo drugs that are notorious for causing not only metallic tastes, but uh, a reduced ability to taste flavors known as hypojusa mm-hmm. or a phantom taste perception. You get a lingering, unpleasant taste even with nothing in your mouth. And this is really kind of these studies over here in, in North America are being funded by the National Institute of Health from their taste and smell division. That's a real thing, which our colleague in the National Institute of Health has never mentioned to us. To be mm-hmm. fair, that's not her department. But you guys, we just have a taste and smell division. Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring that up. And Especially when you have somebody. So medically, if you're having problems tasting, smelling, whether or not you're on chemo or this is just suddenly struck up, the specialty to go to for this is an otolaryngologist. I can't say it. A head and neck doctor. And as, as Professor Spence mentioned, there was an ENT, sure, yeah. An ENT. Um, And one of the coolest things about this neurogastronomy symposium, the very first one was held in 2015 at the University of Kentucky, Challenge, where two teams of neuroscientists and chefs battled with the judges being actual patients with disorders or taste diseases. And starting this year, the challenge has been renamed from the Applied Neurogastronomy Challenge to the Gina Mulla challenge. And she was a judge from year one who unfortunately has succumbed to her cancer since. So this sounds like the cool, I mean, half the time, I'll admit, a lot of us go to 
these conferences to get fed or to see the exotic locations. And if we're lucky, there's an interesting lecture or two. But to attend a lecture that's focused solely on food and culminates in a big food battle sounds like my dream. What kind of parting thoughts would you have for us for people who want to learn more about neurogastronomy or want to kind of get into <laughs> studying it themselves? Students who come along and say, this is great, I want to study this, where do I go? And that's really a hard one to answer because it's kind of sort of new convergence of disciplines, I think. Uh, and as such, there's sort of no one place, psychology department or culinary school or neuroscience department that really uh, does it well. It kind of you know, resides between departments or disciplines. Um, but as a, as a starting thing, then I think uh, Gordon Shepard's book, uh, Neurogastronomy, is, is sort of a great start in, in uh, setting the scene and the importance of, of the brain and the brain circuits involved in tasting. Uh, my own gastrophysics from 2017 sort of uh, touches more on the sort of behavioral aspects uh, of tasting and flavor. Um, and I think you know, there's a lot of information now out there. There's a lot of events and experiences. Um, the uh, Neurogastronomy Symposium is sort of great. I really enjoyed my time uh, when I was there. Not just seeing the science or, or hearing about it, but actually getting to taste it was kind of what got me into flavor in the first place. And that's very much a part of the of the neurogastronomy uh, symposium that you really sort of take you, do, you know, uh, uh, taste what you talk about and talk about what you taste um, together with the experts, not just the sort of scientists saying this is how it should be, but you know there was a real passion from the from the uh, technology side and from the from the chefs who were and continue to be there, as well as from those who are actually you know fully involved in the kind of hospital care sector. We'll a few books, like but sadly not a degree course yet. Sure, it'll come. <laughs> we'll get. Well, what's one what's one advance you would most hope to see? Like if you if you had your own genie to make a wish, what's one advance you'd like to see come out of this in the Wow, what would I wish for? Um because I'm sort of in, interested in in, in, in in the space of of personalization. I'm interested in the space of well, one of the things that, that there's a whole sort of chapter in, in, in the book that I'm worried about is kind of the, the anti-social dining or the fact that so many people these days uh, are, are living and hence dining alone. And you see the figures and it's scary. What percentage, you know, 25% of Japanese uh, sort of pensioners may never eat with anybody else, something like that. Uh, and consequences of okay. dining alone, uh, which are bad at both ends. Either people eat too much because uh, they're depressed or they don't eat enough because they can't get portions for one. It's really got real negative consequences um, across the age spectrum. Then um, uh, one sort of thinks, well, how can we bring back the social element to dining? And so I like to, and that, but that's one of the things that's kind of hard to study because you need multiple actors to, to, to take part in the experiments. But for the future, I'd really hope that uh, you can sort of crack a way of, of bringing a social element that technology really can be brought to bear to connect people rather than what I see it doing at the moment. And one of the things that I, my sort of bugbears about that, you know, all those people dining at the table together and they're all on the smartphones and they're all sort of somewhere else. And that's sort of technology pulling people apart, distracting them from their food. Uh, so I really like to see how, how technology can be brought to, to focus our attention on the food, to enjoy the sensations more and also to, you know, to, to can it be used to kind of, um, uh, bring a more a social element uh, for those who, for whatever reason, are by themselves. You know, can we connect oh, people over Skype or some other medium? Mukbang, as they have in, in Korea, watching it's, somebody else eat while you eat. I don't know, but I think there's a, a really important and interesting space to, to explore. 
No, oh, that's right. <laughs> but this is the same kind of thing. You know, it, it falls under the same thing of people streaming, others watching video or playing video games. Or, you know, my, my kids sometimes stumble upon these where there are YouTube videos of people playing with toys. And so it's almost like you can experience that enjoyment through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So almost like in a kind of empathetic way. Um, Dr. Spence, can we go through a quick uh, uh, dispelling myth? So as a uh, psychologist, as someone who studied now taste in the brain, um, is it true, in fact, that taste is not concentrated in specific portions of the tongue? Like there's no taste map on the yes tongue. so um this is an interesting uh, sort of story that um the most i don't know school textbooks and some serious scientific tomes still to this day would have us believe that um we experience different tastes on different parts of the tongue that sort of sweets on the front the bitters on the back maybe you experience sour on the side that is in textbooks um it turns out mm-hmm. to be uh, a myth, a mistranslation of, I think, a 1904 German textbook by a, a North American psychologist who didn't know his German <laughs> quite as well as perhaps he should, and he got it enshrined uh, as fact. It turns out, I think, that, that, that you know, the taste buds, any one of them will will code sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami. Um, so there isn't that kind of spatial map that we were told well, about. I think that... Sort of bizarre. Because we're, it's been like a cent, over a century since this myth uh, uh, appeared uh, in the textbooks and in the science journals. Surely somebody would have figured out over a hundred years. They probably took about eighty years to do so. <laughs> so I think um, it is certainly true that we don't yeah. have the taste buds are not evenly distributed all all over the tongue. There are some sort of areas and some. Um, okay. And I think there's also something interesting that I haven't got to the bottom of yet, and I'll sort of argue with my. Uh, neurophysiology uh, colleagues um, that sort of in our experience at least it sort of does feel like we sort of feel the astringency and bitterness more in the back of the mouth when we have a cup of overstewed tea we do sort of feel like the sweetness is on the tip of the tongue so I wonder whether there's something more going on than just a simple reading of uh, the taste buds will tell us um, or whether we've all been hoodwinked into reading so many of those textbooks, believing that sweets on the front, that we sort of taste it the way we think it's true, rather than, I don't know. But I think there's more to be discovered there. That is definitely an interesting area for study, but I, I got to admit, we're still hearing stories about how we only use 10% of our brains and we'd all be floating, flying around, unlocking mental powers. So I'm not going to hold out a lot of hope that we'll see correction of this taste bud thing. <laughs> That's right. Stop it. Or we'll come over and spritz you with a water bottle. No, uh, Dr. Spence, thank you so much. Um, Coming from the standpoint of uh, pediatric research and, you know, being in the laboratory, I know that um, investigators like yourself are always uh, looking to add to your lab. Um, Would it be all right for us to um, share where a prospective Graduate student or postdoc? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's all fine. Um, if they, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably, I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong generation yeah. for the uh, for for, right. for tweeting and uh, websites. So there's probably something up there online. And uh, yeah, here at Oxford University's Department of Experimental Psychology, uh, and always keep talk to um and support those Absolutely. who are interested in this space.
Wonderful. So uh, for those of you listening out there, uh, you guys can go to psy.ox.ac.uk slash team slash Charles dash Spence. And uh, he's got a beautiful uh, front page there at the University of Oxford. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure they can track you down from there in terms of finding, um, you know, where to join, how to learn more about it. And I genuinely hope um, this field only continues to grow and inform us. Um, we've got patients right here on the pediatric wards um, and Josh, I'm sure, on the adult wards recovering from surgeries and chronic conditions where I know that the type of yeah, I'm really information that you're learning and passing on would be wonderfully beneficial to them. Yeah, I'm real excited to see how this could be applied in the hospital, and uh, I've got I've got thoughts and opinions. So, so we'll see how those shake out. But that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that will be in the show notes, along with all the resources we found in researching this and our contact info for those of you looking for more. Uh, The theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with so, so much help from all of our co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.